0: The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit ridgewoodgreer.com. So about 10 years ago, uh, I was first acquainted with a singer-songwriter by the name of Ray LaMontagne. Anybody familiar? Ray LaMontagne, yeah, some of us, yeah. So because I'm, you know, officially Pushing 40 at this point, I feel like this is probably in the category of not cool music anymore. So Ray LaMontagne, I feel I like Ray LaMontagne. He's, got a, he's kind of a neo-Nashville singer-songwriter type. His voice is somehow really pure, but it's also kind of rough as well. And it's just this really unique, kind of beautiful sound. It's, it's one of those voices that he could make you cry reading the Taco Bell menu. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just... It's just so good, so, so good. And there's a, a particular song of his that um, the way that it's structured is just really, really clever. And I think really, really pays off really well when you get to the end of the song. I won't tell you the name of the song yet because it sort of spoils it. But in verse 1, he's singing to his beloved. And it's this sweet reminiscence about the ways in which he's thankful for her. You've done this for me. I'm thankful for you. You've been a faithful friend and a faithful lover to me. He gets to the chorus and he says, I was born to love. I was born to. I was born to love. I was born to. Then he gets to verse 2, and it's a similar pattern. He's reminiscing about the sweetness of this, this relationship that he has with his wife. And then he sings, I was born to love. I was born to. I was born to love. I was born to. And then there's this musical break and you kind of enjoy the guitar playing and you enjoy the melodies and the soaring of the highs and then the soaring of the lows and all that. And then the plane kind of lands as the song comes to its outro and it just fits and lands perfectly. He says, I was born to love you. I was born to love you. And he just repeats it as the song plays out. And it just gets me, you know? Just gets me. Now truthfully, When we think about our relationships and we think about romance, I don't know if that's the appropriate way to think about falling in love. You know, biblically speaking, theologically, philosophically, you know, I don't know if I was born to love Emily or if she was born to love me, my wife. You know, I don't know if that's the case. Though if you've ever fallen in love, it certainly feels that way. The song definitely works. So, you know, I don't know if that's exactly how romantic relationships work. But here's what I do know with absolute certainty christian you look any brother or sister in the eye any fellow christian in the face you can say with full assurance and complete confidence i was born to love you the last couple of weeks we have been in a teaching series in the book of first peter that we've called letter to exiles We've talked about how Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are beleaguered. They feel like they are homeless because their values and their commitments, their their way of following after Jesus is at odds with the nations that they find themselves in. And they look around and they feel weird. They feel like exiles. And so Peter is writing this letter to strengthen those exiles, to encourage them, that that feeling of of being weird or different or at odds with the surrounding culture isn't isn't to be a surprise. That's exactly what Jesus has called us into. We remember Jesus when he tells his disciples that they are in the world but not of the world. And we've said that as we read 1 Peter and we consider the circumstances of the original hearers, it's like, man, to be a Christian in the West in 2024, feels a little bit weird. right? Some of our ethical commitments and practices make us feel a little bit distinct, kind of in contrast to the surrounding world. And it's like, yeah, that's the calling on us. And in fact, that's the way that it's always been for God's people. And we find great encouragement reading a letter to exiles 2,000 years ago as exiles in our present day. The letter begins with this kind of this, this beautiful exposition of the hope that Christians are given in Jesus. We're told that Christians are kept by God, it, regardless of what we experience, regardless of the opposition or the circumstances we find ourselves in. We are kept by God and kept for an imperishable, unfading, undefiled inheritance. That there are glorious riches that await us, Christian. And though it can be tough to see and tough to feel in the present, that is the reality for us. There is a hope that is held out for us. And so in response, Peter calls this church, calls us, to be people of hope. To be sober-minded. To remember the thing that we're living for. We're living for the hope we have in Christ, not for things of this world. He also calls us to be a people of holiness who conduct themselves in fear throughout the time of their exile. To remember that as God is holy, we are to be holy. We are to be distinct. We are to be a holy, righteous people. And in this text today, what does Peter exhort these exiles to do? Love. Let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. <coughs> Excuse me, that was a violent cough. <coughs> 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. All right, so, in the second half of verse 22, we see the exhortation here, the last part of that sentence. What does he say? Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. We'll get there in a second. But look at the front end of verse 22. How does he describe these Christians? He describes them as those who have had their souls purified by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. So he's saying that the, the, as those who have had their hearts cleansed, whose souls have been purified by obedience to the truth, by receiving and submitting to the truth of the gospel, as those whose souls have been purified by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Right? He, he says that at least in part, the reason that we were saved is we were saved for sincere, brotherly love. We have been saved for affection for one another. Those who have been washed clean by belief in the gospel, who have been saved to love, Christian, you've been saved, you're a Christian, your souls have been purified for obedience. He then turns and exhorts them, because this is so, at the end of verse 22, love. As those whose souls have been saved by your obedience to the gospel, saved to love, love, Love. Let's settle on each of these words for a second. Look at, look at how he describes this kind of love. It's not generic, flavorless love. There's some sharpness and some direction to this. He says that we are saved to a sincere brotherly love, so love each other with an earnest, pure-hearted love. What does he mean when he talks about a brotherly or sisterly love? I have a picture up here for you. So this comes from my mom's Facebook header, because where else would a picture like this be found? (laughs) So this is my family. Excuse me. I think I counted 16 of us in that picture. So my brother on the far end and his family. There's my sister and her husband and their family, my parents in the middle. And then this is my family on this end. So this this is the whole Hoffman Temples squad at the beach. Right? And it just keeps growing, and it's great. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's funny, whenever we are at the beach, we talk about, man, this is so much fun. Imagine how much fun Christmas is going to be. Then we get to Christmas, we say, man, this is so much fun. Let's think about how much fun the beach is going to be. And it's just this kind of never-ending cycle. Thankful for my family. Enjoy those folks. Now, my wife, whose family is not pictured, she has three siblings, two of whom are married, and one of whom has three children. All right? So that's I can't do all the math off the top. That's a lot of people. So there's 16 people here, and that's just our sort of nuclear families, right? That's not taking into account aunts and uncles and all the other connections. Now look at this picture. Let me ask you. Excuse me. How many of those people did I pick? One. Emily, the one standing to my right. I picked exactly one person in that picture. How many of those people were given to me? Fifteen, if my math is correct. What are my options with regard to those people I didn't pick? Well, I can have resentment towards them. I can be frustrated by them. I can be bitterness at the hand that, uh, have bitterness at the hand that I was given. Probably some good reason for all of those things. Or I could choose to receive those people that I did not pick as a gift. My brother, my sister, my brother's wife, my sister's husband, my children, their kids, the ones that God gave to me, I can either be resentful of or I can learn to love these people, choose to love them, right? You feel me? Peter says, love with brotherly love. We have been saved to God the Father, which entails brothers and sisters that I did not pick. And it's not just 15 of them, right? Millions and billions all across the world. But here at Ridgewood, we have 207 members. If you're one of them, there are 206 other members here that the Lord Jesus has given to you to love. Folks that you did not choose, which includes weirdos and difficult to handle people and people who have bad taste in music. They still listen to Ray LaMontagne. Can you believe it? All sorts of people that you did not pick. God did. God picked them, and he picked you. He chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. And so our choices are we can be bitter at that, or we can receive them as siblings, period, in love. Do you follow me? So Peter says, love one another as if you are siblings, Find it within yourself to love one another with a brotherly love. And he says this is to be a sincere brotherly love. What is sincere love? Maybe that's kind of hard to nail down. But because we live in the southern United States of America, I feel certain that we understand what insincere love looks like. It's a kind of play-acting love. It's to to put off or, or give the impression of being a loving person. But there's no affection that undergirds that. More often than not, it's a cover for a kind of disdain. But that is not the way that we are called to be, Christian. Our love is to be sincere, brotherly, affectionate, true, a pure kind of love. Peter says it's to be an earnest love. That word earnest appears two times in the New Testament. It's interpreted as earnest here. It's interpreted as fervent elsewhere. It's Probably better understood to be a fervency to our love. It's a If I could say it this way, it's an aggressive kind of love. It's a pursuing, initiative-taking kind of love. And then he says it's to be a pure-hearted love. Pure-hearted love is love that's genuinely committed to the good of another. It's not manipulative. It doesn't have ulterior motives. It's not angling for a particular outcome. It's not diluted or compromised. It's pure. And by God's grace, we have been saved to that new kind of regard for one another. Sincere, brotherly affection. Now you read that and you think, what do I do with the fact that, well, frankly, it's just not always there? How am I to love in this way when oftentimes my heart isn't just in it? Like, how do you, how do you conjure up sincere brotherly affection? Like, it not the point, like, we're not supposed to fake it, so where do I get that sincere brotherly affection from? Do I need to take three verses, you know, once a day for two weeks, and if the symptoms don't get better, you know, talk more, you know? That's not the idea here. <clears throat> I think it's worth mentioning that when it comes to Christian growth and virtue, there's a difference between what we might call good pretending and bad pretending. Bad pretending is what Jesus condemns in places like the Sermon on the Mount. Bad pretending is what this passage condemns. Duplicitist, two-faced, sort of aimed at giving the impression of being loving with no real desire to care for somebody else. I want you to think I'm loving. I don't actually care to feel any kind of way towards you. So I'm going to give off the impression, I'm going to pretend to be a loving person. That's not the way of God's people. We're to be whole, fully integrated, people of integrity, right? But there is a good kind of pretending that I think is actually appropriate for Christians to embrace. Hang with me on this. When I'm called to love someone, a brother I didn't choose, for instance, when I'm called to love him with brotherly affection, the way that I get here is twofold. First, it is by nursing on the word. We'll get that to that in a second. But secondly, it's, well, pretending to love him. But it's not done to be duplicitous. It's choosing to act in a way that's loving so that my heart can eventually catch up to my actions. What Peter wants us to get to is love, is affection. He wants us to get to the point where I smile at seeing Marshall Pierce. Just at the side of my brother, I'm happy to see him. And the way that we get there is by choosing to act our way into feeling. And that's actually a really God-honoring, healthy kind of pretending to have in place. Do you follow me? Here's Peter's big, juicy rationale for this exhortation. The thing that makes all of it work, right here. Watch this. Verse 22. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Sense. Sense is one of those grammatical relationship words that Aaron talked about last week. It kind of links these two ideas. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been what? Born again. Born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter says, Love one another since you have been born of the imperishable seed of the word. It's a pure-hearted love that's grounded in being born of imperishable seed. Like a child born of a father, we have been born anew of God the Father by the seed of the word. And here Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 40. The context of Isaiah 40 is a word of comfort from God to his people. Peter links this quotation with our hearing of the gospel in verse 25. The word is the good news that has been preached to you. And interestingly, a friend pointed out this week, uh, that there's multiple words that are at play there in verses 24 and 25. The, the first use of, the, uh, of the, the word word in the Greek is the word logos. The latter two uses of the word word here in the Greek are the word rima. The importance of this is first that, that logos, especially here with the adjectives living and abiding, speaks of the timeless capital W word that stands before and behind and up under everything. It's the big-time spoken word of God that sustains all things, capital T, truth. But rhema, the second use of the word, foregrounds kind of this sense of hearing, a sense of a word that's been spoken that we receive. Right? So The idea is that the big W, word of God, verse 25, The good news of the gospel has come to us for those who are Christians. Peter says that the word has come into us through our ears, like the the Star Trek worm in Wrath of Khan. It, like, wiggles its way through our ear and then burrows down into the soil of our heart. And the result is that we are reborn spiritually. And like an oak tree, a tree called love bursts out of us. I I love this image. Several weeks back, I saw a picture. It was on one of those... um, like Twitter accounts, it's like interesting facts, you know, one of those? It was this picture of a tree that had been split in two and a brand new oak tree had kind of grown up out of the middle. And somebody reposted that and said, behold the Christian life, <laughs> which is excellent. I mean, that's, that's exactly what we see being described here. And the New Testament describes us as this old man who has been split into as this new tree has taken root in us and grows up out of us growing from the seed of the word that's implanted into us a tree called love. 1 John argues this very same thing using very similar imagery. Have it on the screen. This comes from 1 John chapter 4. He says, "Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God." Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You see the relationship here between these ideas, right? Makes perfect sense. I mean, let's consider for a moment the God that we're speaking about here in 1 Peter and in 1 John. This is the God who created all things. Every good thing c- comes from the heart and mind of this God. And he made us in his image to rule with, like, and for him. Yet the tragic story of the Bible is one of rebellion. One of turning our backs on God in an act of cosmic treason an atrocity of idolatry. We rebel against God, and we rightfully earn God's judgment. His justice and his wrath is directed towards us. We deserve death. But how does God respond to us? The Lord is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. He moves towards us in kindness. Jesus himself says it this way in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The God of love sends his own son to die for his enemies. The son of God takes on flesh. He becomes like us. He dies for us. God the Father judges Jesus for us so that we could be welcomed back into life with him. Later on in 1 Peter, 1 Peter says it like this. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Look at this. The righteous For the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So, if that's the God we're talking about, that's the gospel we're talking about, that's what's encapsulated in the word that we're talking about, it makes all the sense in the world that those people who have been born of this God will behave like that God. How else would we expect God's children to behave towards one another than love? An apple tree makes what kind of, uh, apple seed rather makes what kind of tree? Apple. An orange seed makes what kind of tree? So listen, the living and imperishable seed of God's word that takes root in us makes what kind of tree? Those born again by the message of the gospel means we are born into being people of love. I think we could summarize the passage like this Christian, we're born by the word of God to love the people of God. Christian, I was born to love you, born anew to a new kind of life, to love you, and you were born to love me. My apologies. (laughs) Let me just ask, I mean, really think about this. How does does thinking about the relationship of the gospel and, and the word taking root in our hearts, how does that change your take on the importance of Christian affection for one another? Maybe we give it, you know, all kind of lip service. Yeah, we should love. Yeah, love's a good thing. But to think about it like this, as being born for love, I mean, it takes a, kind of, a different kind of weight on, doesn't it? To recognize that brothers and sisters aren't incidental to God's design for me as a Christian, but to see that we belong together, that, that I was born to love you and you were born again to love me, that gives this thing a new kind of weight, I think. The living and abiding word has taken root in you, and this does something to us. Don't you think? Now, I want to acknowledge a, a kind of huge Jupiter-sized elephant in the room when we talk about Christian love. Maybe you hear this and you think, you know, yeah, that's, that's all fantastic. But the problem with this theory and the problem with what Peter's saying here is, well, Christians. I've been around enough Christians to know that this is most certainly not the way that they behave. And i got to be honest with you, I'm not super motivated to love those kind of people, you say. You hear it and you say Christians aren't always so loving. I look around the room and I know that some of you have seen some stuff. I feel certain of that. I know that to be the case with many of you. I've seen some stuff too. But the Bible actually gives us permission. I think more than that, the responsibility of calling out people who are consistently unloving. Because an unloving Christian is a category error. It does not compute. To be born of God is to love the people of God, 1 John. Again, if you don't love, you aren't born, right? So a consistent kind of posture of unlovingness, especially towards God's people, it's a check engine light on the dashboard of our heart, right? One who says, I love God, but hates his brother, John says, is a liar. It's not possible. You can tell on yourself by your lack of love. Do you have a consistent hardness to people? Do you have a consistent hardness to your spouse? Makes you wonder. But it would also say, isn't there a reason that Peter gives this command? If this were an automatic sort of thing, Peter wouldn't have needed to repeat this and say, without mincing words, Christians love, right? The reason Peter says this is because of the things we've experienced Because sometimes Christians live contrary to their new nature. And we need to be reminded. We need to be called to love. We we need it restated often, who we are and what we are now and what that means for us. That we are to be people of love. Let's keep reading. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Peter says, since we've received the word of the gospel, we've been reborn to love. If love is the thing we're called to put on, chapter 2, verse 1. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Here I think Peter's giving us the other side of the coin. And again, we're to put on love in verse 22. Now put off things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, evil, slander. We hear that and we hear these big bad wolfy words. And it's like, I'm glad I'm not guilty of any of those things. Surely none of us in this room are guilty of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or slander. Can't imagine that any of us would take sick delight in one-upping somebody. Can't imagine that any of us secretly delight in the misfortune of other people or harbor vindictive feeling towards others. I can't imagine that any of us in this room... Uh, ever can relate to ever having manipulative motives or being intentionally unclear or duplicitous in the things we say. Thankfully, we don't struggle with that, right? Thankfully, none of us have hypocritical expectations expecting different things from others than we do for ourselves. Thankfully, none of us get angry when other people are given good good gifts that I want. Thankfully, none of us are guilty of tearing people down behind their backs. Thankfully, Peter's talking to people other than us, right? Right? Peter's saying, Christian, you are born by the word of God to love the people of God. Put those things away. They have no place amongst God's people. Instead, we're to be be like newborn infants who are sustained by their mother's milk, who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And we're to devote ourselves to these things, to grow up, to mature into the salvation, the new name that he's given us. We're to be strengthened, I think, by the milk of the word. Uh, Elsewhere... This imagery in the New Testament is used to describe immaturity. Uh, other writers will say, you're, you're drinking milk, you should be eating steak at this point. But here, I think the emphasis on milk isn't one on immaturity, it's about sustenance. Like in the same way that, a, that a, a child wakes up constantly during the night because it needs to be fed, he's saying that we're to be nurtured and sustained on God's word as his children, if we're to be people of love. We're to routinely revisit what the Bible has to say about who we are now in Christ to nurture a kind of new loving life within us. I think there's a caricature that we can sometimes have that word and love are inversely proportional. understand what I mean by that? The word and love are inversely proportional. That if you were to chart on a graph somebody's commitment to the word and somebody's loving, that the more committed you are to the word, that love decreases. That tends to be the caricature that we have in our heart and our mind. But the Bible actually flips that. says that word and love are directly proportional. That the deeper you are in the word, the more that you are nurtured and sustained by the word. Actually, the more loving that you are. Because what are we acquainted with when we read the pages of scripture? The God of love who could have judged us but didn't. So we're sustained by the milk of the word as people of love. People so overturned and revolutionized by the gospel that I can't help but find a little, a little affection in me for you. And it helps me to see that there is no quarter in the people of God, there should be no quarter for malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, the thing that's really interesting to me as we think about this command and we think about what Peter's doing with this command is it's, 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 it's interesting to sort of think about why Peter would encourage this group of people to love when we think about their circumstances remember again that these folks are folks who are beleaguered they're in exile they're they're being contested there's opposition that's being kind of thrusted you know upon them why is it that peter exhorts them to love at this point you know hope i understand holiness i understand but why love why exhort to love here now, about two weeks, uh, I have the misfortune of driving to Washington D.C. with my family. Um, I realize how that sounded. That's not what I'm. <laughs> That's not what I meant. Let me <laughs> remember that picture I showed you. I love my family. What I mean is, what I mean is, I hate being in the car. Anybody just absolutely hate being in a car. It's awful. It's tight space. It's always hot. It's stinky human bodies. It's tight spaces, you get about three hours in, and you're hungry and hot, and every sound is infuriating, right? You've been there. Now, it's just my observation that during stressful times, like during on a road trip, what is the first thing to go when it gets hard, stressful, and difficult? Love. Sweetness. Affection. Playfulness. You can't pick on each other anymore, everybody's tense, everybody's on a hair trigger, everybody's sensitive because of this road trip. It's the first thing to go. Peter's writing to a group of Christians that are beleaguered, that are opposed, that have been faithful, and he's encouraging them towards faithfulness. I think it's really reasonable to think, and maybe Peter senses pastorally, that in a situation like that, what is the first thing to go? Love. I'm actually reminded of Revelation chapter 2 when Jesus speaks to the church at Ephesus. If you're familiar, the situation at Ephesus is actually kind of similar to this and probably pretty relatable for a church like ours. They're a hard-working church are characterized by endurance and discernment. They're morally and ethically robust. But one thing they lack, Jesus says. What is it? Love. Now, I wonder if after enduring exile for a while with lots of opposition over long periods of time can create a bunker mentality where we're antagonistic. We bring up the drawbridge. It's us against them. It's grenades over the castle wall. And internally, eventually what happens is a culture of suspicion takes root. We become a sort of soured community where we fear openness and vulnerability. We don't trust. We get grumpy. We get insulated. We get fearful. We get reactive. We start nipping and nagging and yapping and yar, 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 yar at each other. Like on a road trip, right? Love is always hard, but it's especially hard during trying times when it's typically the first thing to go. And if we think about our moment for a second, as people who are in exile in trying, uncertain, dizzying times, in an election year, in an increasingly splintered, suspicious, volatile society. We shiver just even thinking, hearing the word election, thinking about it. I feel certain that we have different convictions about immigration, about Donald Trump, about the role of church and state, about what our responsibility is with lesser of two evils, about climate change, about the military, all in the same church. In the same community groups, in the same rows of chairs, right now, significant disagreements. And of course, that's to say nothing of the normal bumps and bruises and hurts that come from having 200 not yet fully redeemed people in one room together. But when the first thing that could get crowded out is love, Peter reminds us, you have been born by the word of God to love the people of God. I believe this is an alternative life together that is is, is something we have to offer the world, in 2024 especially. I'm not advocating for naive, cheap, agree to disagree that doesn't appreciate the importance of these issues. Nor am I talking about sweeping offenses under the rug. What I'm talking about is a costly commitment to the good of one another that is sincere, pure-hearted, and brotherly. And we actually see that as one of the ways we make Jesus known because Jesus relativizes those even important disagreements. I think one specific way we can love each other in our day and age is to refuse to let the internet radicalize us against each other. Especially brothers and sisters in the same local church. Hear my heart in this. Don't let some dude or some lady on the internet a million miles from here tell you how to regard this brother or this sister who thinks differently about Donald Trump than you. You share the Lord's table together. Week after week, we come to the Lord's table together as those in need of the same body and same blood. We make up the same local church, the same body, rescued by the same Jesus Go to this brother or sister, know them, have them over, talk about these things, resist caricatures, refuse reactivity towards one another on this stuff. Don't freak out, don't raise voices. We talk, we persuade, we love. Because we are those born by the word of God to love the people of God. And there's there's good news, there's only two circumstances where you're commanded to love. When you feel like it, and when you don't. When we're high, when our affections and spirits are up, when people are likable and easy, when it's fun to rejoice with others, when it's a privilege to weep with them, and when it's not, when people are draining and exhausting, when you feel empty, when someone's given you something, when someone's given something you wish you had, we love. And it's because of this truth that we have been born by the word of God to love the people of God. That's what enables us to love. I'm curious this morning how all of this might land on you. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder what you make of this Christian message of love. We're not talking about cheap affirmation. We're talking about a deep commitment to one another. And I want to ask if you've actually ever seen something like that. Do you believe it's even possible? And our conviction as a church is that we think it is. We think the Bible tells us that it is. We're committed to figuring it out together by the Lord's grace. But if you're here this morning you're not a Christian, more, more, than, more, more than any of those things I just said, what I'd like to say is that we have a word for you, the word of the gospel that Jesus died for your sin. He offers forgiveness and new life. He offers rebirth to a new life, to a new family, to a new way of being. Most of all, he, reckon, he, he offers us being reconciled to God. And we'd ask if you could respond to the message of the gospel with belief in Jesus. If you're here this morning you're a Christian, the question that I would just ask you simply is, do you love? Maybe you need to ask, am I nursing on the word of God? Is it nourishment to me? Again, one way we know that the word is doing its work in us is in our increase in love. Maybe my de- uh, deficiency can be traced back to here, a lack in nursing on God's word. Maybe others of us need to ask, have I reckoned with the love that I've been given in Christ? Have you internalized that you have been given a love you did not earn or deserve? Have you felt the full weight of what God has done for you? And does this not joyfully constrain us to sacrifice for one another? I'd say some of us need to reacquaint ourselves with the reality of the gospel and your salvation from judgment, which has ethical implications. In a place that each of us this morning are reacquainted with God's love for us is in the place where the word is made edible. We're reacquainted with the gospel and what God has done for us at the Lord's table. Every week we come forward and we take a bite of bread and we drink juice. What this reminds us of is God's sustaining love for us. That Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. And as we eat and as we think about Christ's sacrifice, we look around the room and we see all of these other people that are taking of the same table, and we're reminded that they needed the same grace I did, and we belong together as God's people. The next few moments, I'm going to read through a liturgy, and the way that this will work is when I get to the point of inviting you all forward, we always ask folks to kind of go to the outer walls, to come forward this way, to grab uh, the elements, and then go go back to your seat and stay standing as we sing together. And then, after we sing that song, after we all get our elements, we'll take together all at once. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you because you first loved us, and we pray that we would indeed be people of love. Not cheap love, not flimsy love, but a deep commitment to one another that is bound up in a response to what you have done for us. Would you constrain us to joyful sacrifice for each other? Would you make us regard each other with sincere brotherly affection? Would you make us fervent and zealous in love? And for friends that are here this morning who have not yet believed, would you open their eyes to see the beauty of the gospel? Would you work in them? Lord Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.